Look at you. You bravely braved the weather. Ready to go? All right. It's a, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. As long as there's an ability for me to get to that door down there um, with a four-wheel drive vehicle, unless my four-wheel drive vehicle breaks, I, we're gonna, I'm going to be here. Um, and um, as long as one of those guys can make it up there, we'll live stream it. Um, but it's, uh, sometimes the weather does what it does. And um, March is a weird month this year. Um, we've got all our winter at the end. But I'm confident that we're going to break out the, uh, the bright colors here in a little bit for, uh, for spring. Uh, we have the nursery. All right. Uh, if you'll turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to talk about something that's really, really uh, uncomfortable in our cu- current conversation in America because of Ameri- the, the American history of slavery. A very uh, incendiary topic that um, shouldn't be, but it is. Um, we're talking about slavery. I'm proud of the New American Standard in verse uh, 5 of chapter 6, translating the word doulos as slaves. Sometimes you'll see this translation as bond servants. And the idea is that we're going to attenuate, we're going to lessen the impact of the word slave for probably sensitivity to cultural issues, like the fact that in this culture there was chattel slavery. Um, up until the uh, conclusion of the American Civil War, or the war between the states, in 1865. As we get into this discussion of what it means to be a spirit-filled believer, functioning properly under the Lord Jesus Christ as a slave, as we get into this discussion and walk through the verse, uh, verses 5 through 8, I want to reflect a little bit on this concept of slavery. I was raised by constitution-loving American parents who, for them, perhaps the most fearful thing in the world would be to find yourself enslaved. As a national cultural concern, that few things could be worse to contemplate than being enslaved. I was raised... uh, at the tail end of the Cold War, or the latter half of the Cold War, with a, a sense, latter third, sorry, of the Cold War, with a sense that those poor people behind the Iron Curtain, remember the Iron Curtain? Those poor people that um, found themselves behind a wall that they couldn't get over without being shot, that those poor people were enslaved to the state to the Soviet Union, meaning that their lives and their product belonged to the collective. And the collective determined for them the choices that they would make in their lives. That's how I came up as a red-blooded American boy. And my army interest as a child began with uh, Iceland, Reykjavik, and the concern over, before, before the crumble of the Berlin Wall, before the Soviet Union broke up, the concern in the end of the arms race 
that there was going to be a war between these two ideologies. And I wanted to go and do my part as a little kid. That's how I was raised. You understand that that's, that's how I grew up thinking about life and duty. Because in part, the greatest fear you could have in life is not to die, but to be enslaved by someone. I hope you can appreciate that. Because, well, the thing is, we're kind of addicted to our freedom. We love it. We want it. We have it. And um, for those who have a little bit of historical perspective, we recognize there is a bubble in history called this American experiment, which runs against the entire tide of world history. You don't have to have status economically to have legal protection in this country. You don't even have to be a citizen of this country to be treated equally before the law, much like God directed Israel in the Mosaic law. The sojourner among you who is not part of the nation, the Gentile who lives among you, the resident alien, will be treated equally before the law. You don't give him favoritism and you don't oppress him just because he's not part of the collective, part of the family. And, and we have something in this country that is precious it's because of how rare it is and how beautiful it is. But we have to consider its purpose. The purpose for American freedom, I believe, in God's story, in God's history, is the advance of the mandate to make disciples of all the nations. I don't mean that as a matter of national policy. The policy is simply the infrastructure don't infringe on each other's freedoms. Let's, let's build a structure where sinful people are restrained from their sinfulness in crime so that people are free to the most they can be with their property, with their resources, and so forth. That's just the infrastructure. But I believe the reason for it in God's eternal purpose, obviously, is the advance of the gospel, is making disciples, is the freedom, we said in the first one in the Bill of Rights, to speak. Our mind about the things of God. And when you put it in that term, that it's about that mission, and you go back to the Scriptures and let go of your cultural background and say, well, what's Paul doing here? You could be a more effective Christian disciple-maker as a Roman slave than the rank-and-file American video game-playing, potato-chip-eating, uh, red-blooded American children. Today. A Roman slave with the Word of God who's regularly taught and says, my life is God's even though I belong to a master, he could better serve God as a Spirit-filled slave than the rank-and-file, even Christian American youth, young man, young woman, who isn't recognizing what life is for. Because it isn't about your economic status. It's not about what you do for a living. It's about having life. And it's about proclaiming life. And I think this is a message for a time in which we live. Why? Because we as a nation are throwing away the birthright for which many have bled called this American freedom. We're throwing it away as quickly as we can in the interest of certain utopian ideals, utopian dreams like Medicare for all. 
We're going to solve everybody's health problems because everybody should have equal access to the, to the doctor. And when someone gets in front of that in terms of a market and says, we're going to set the market up, what, what happens? We, we watched what happened. You get Soviet health care. It's not great. Technology will fix it. It won't. And, and I'm, I'm scared of that. I don't want to see this destruction of liberty. I don't want to see um, where I can't do it my way, the way I want to, to seek health care for my kids, for example. Just for just a silly example, health care for the children. I don't want to see someone take that over from me. I'm responsible for that. But um, that's not life. That's not the mission. And the furniture, the arrangement of the details, the system in which I find myself, that is just going to help me figure out how I'm going to do the mission God has for me to do. If Thomas Sowell last week could say, don't bet on America rejecting socialism in the next 20 years. Don't bet on it. Don't say this, this, this new socialist upsurge where the state provides all our needs. That's half of slavery the state provides. When someone provides all your needs, we've got half of the equation of slavery. Slavery doesn't mean that you just have to work for someone. It means you have to work for someone who feeds you and provides for you. Like, um, do you have a shed for your lawnmower? There's a reason for that. It's because if it's exposed to the elements, you lose your lawnmower. Nobody's going to buy a lawnmower every year. So you, you provide for it. You get some housing. You get some structure for that lawnmower. You feed it. Probably, if you've got a good lawnmower and you want it to keep going, what do you put in there? 93. Put the good stuff, right? So that, it, that, that 85 stuff doesn't break down. 87 doesn't break down. I'm just saying you take care of your lawnmower because it was expensive. It's part of your property and you've you got to keep using Grass is going to keep growing. So you've got to cut the grass. See, that tool that I've got in my shed, I've done all this work to make sure this thing runs properly. That's what slavery is like. The slave owner has to provide for those slaves some sort of basic living and subsistence and so forth. A living wage. You get your feedback at the end of a long day. The mule gets to go eat his oats. Ox is worthy of his wages in the New Testament. I'm just saying, if you think about what slavery is, when someone starts providing for your needs, you've found um, half of the equation. Because there's no free lunch. Hey, we gave you Medicare. Go to the factory. I don't want to work in a factory. Well, but we've decided based on our Soviet exam that you're probably best suited for our factory. But I want to do something different. Well, we didn't vote that way. We didn't choose that. We had a utopian dream, and this is it. Go enjoy. Well, anyway, um, I don't want to paint a, a totally dark picture on this. You worked hard to get here. Um, but I do want you to see that it's not the worst thing that ever happened, that people were enslaved. In fact, I think all peoples have been enslaved, all peoples. That fantastic Britain, a fantastic young man, of, uh, of the, I believe, the main English island, Patrick, 500s, captured by Irish pirates. Didn't know there were Irish pirates, did you? Oh, yeah. 
They said R with a little bit of an Irish brogue. <laughs> These marauding uh, band of pirates came and, uh, uh, on the coastland and captured Patrick, a young man, almost like a Daniel-type story, brought him into slavery. And uh, he tried to escape many times and was beaten every time when he tried to escape. Very oppressive circumstance in which he found himself. And um, the question of whether or not he was a Christian before or after is an interesting thing. But went through this slavery thing, finally did escape, got back home, got back to his uh, church, his priest. His, uh, by 500s, we were confused a lot, but um, he's back to the word as he understands it. And um, not long thereafter, Patrick goes back to those people that enslaved him as a missionary. And I know that the legend is that he kicked all the snakes out of Ireland. Uh, I guess I think they're back. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, but the point is that that's a, that's a missionary story, St. Patrick. There's a missionary story about a man taken as a slave who then had compassion on his captors and went back to evangelize them. And... Um, it, it's hard to know what's legend and what's historical fact because of um, just how tradition works. But, but that's, that's what St. Pat, next Sunday, wear your green. We're talking about slavery. What, how, what an interest, interesting coincidence. I didn't put that together. But um, slavery can be the context in which you serve the Lord. You can pray and have a prayer meeting in the Romanian Soviet uh, gulag prison like Richard, Richard Wormbrand. And, um, and uh, you can then, once you're freed, go write a book and tell the world, let's get the gospel back to Eastern Europe because they haven't heard it for 70 years. And that's the story of Voice of the Martyrs. So the, the problem of the furniture, I believe me, I have my preference on how it should be arranged. But the gospel is going to continue. And we're going to do the work that God has laid in front of us. Um, as Paul describes this for these slaves here in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. The last thing I want to say about slavery, by introducing this little chunk, we're going to probably do three messages tonight, today, um, next Sunday, and then next Wednesday. Um, but there are three or four ways you become a slave, historically. Now it's time for a discussion. Anybody know one of the ways? Can you help me out think through what are the three or four ways that you become a slave? So someone sells you into slavery, but how did you find yourself in the position of being sold? War. That's the primary one in world history. Now, that's not racism, is it? That's not racial. Oh, look, somebody of this skin color, slave. Somebody not of this color, not... No, that's not how it works. It's, it's cultural. One group of people gets suborned by another group of people on the battlefield, and the spoils of war include slavery. Goliath of Gath knows about this. You know, Goliath, Mingat, Goliath. You ever read the, you know, your Sunday school? <laughs> First Samuel 17. What does Goliath say about slavery and battle and warfare? He says, if your champion beats me, then we will become your servants. And, well, is that, yeah, that's a, in fact, when, when the treaty is struck between the warring parties and one gets beaten by the other, you go into a covenant called a suzerain vassal treaty where the higher king and an authority is now ruling over the vassal. And there's a subordination that's happened. 
Uh, well, that's not slavery, is it not? They bring tribute in to the higher king, and he wants more and more money of your, of your national product. And, hey, I need some more people to come trim the gardens. And, and uh, yeah, that's a, that, that is when someone has the right over you to decide what you're going to do with your life and your resources, that, that's what we're talking about with slavery. What's another way? Historically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are we there? Debt slavery. This is the biblical view. When you steal and you owe seven times and you can't pay, you go into a debtor situation where you're now an indenture. You're a slave of the person that you owe. That's way better than prison. Because now the person's productive. and the other, There's remuneration and, and it, there's a righteous arrangement there instead of putting someone in a cage. I mean, we do believe that all people bear God's image and God is a creative, working, industrious being and so to put him in a cage and say, sit around and watch TV and we'll feed you it three times a day, that seems to be absurd to me. But God's system in Israel makes a lot more sense. But it's a form of bondage. You've, you've indebted yourself. And so the, the idea of debt slavery, it's a world history thing. We don't do it anymore as, as a culture here. But um, because we're afraid of this slavery problem except that now we have a whole culture what's the latest number anybody got a off the news the national debt where are we at 23 trillion my hand got tired writing zeros on 23 trillion okay um and um doing really quick math on uh 350 million people and that's um 100 million households you know three people per household 3.5 people per household Maybe that's a little, but that's rough math. 100 million households. Let's divide 100 million into 23, 23 trillion. That's way more than I make uh, in a long, I mean, that's a lot of money. I don't know how much that is per household, but uh, that's the tune of our national debt. We all own it together. I didn't sign up for that, but we do because of how we vote. So debt slavery is one, and I don't know how the, the how do we get the butcher bill paid on that one. I don't know how that's going to fall out. I know that if this co- economy collapses, so does everyone else's. So um, the world's kind of in it. But okay, so you got debt slavery, and then people would sell themselves in, in for an indenture to uh, advance their own economic situation in the Roman system. Romans could sell themselves into slavery and take that money and start a business after the seven-year indenture. I've got two articles that I read on slavery to prepare for today in this little study, and I just want to share the summary with you. In the um, Dictionary of Paul and his letters and the, and the Dictionary of New Testament background by the um, um, InterVarsity Press, is really great uh, reference works that I generally recommend for research, just introductory research. Um, there are two comp- competing articles on slavery in the Roman world, and that's because there's this big debate on how Roman slavery worked. <clears throat> the prevailing view for the last couple decades, I think, has been that slavery in Rome was very different from American chattel slavery. So when we read slave and we think of you know, the cotton plantations in the South, that's different from what's going on in Rome. That's been the prevailing view. But, but the problem is that there's not a lot of information, and that view is based on one statement by uh, the Roman orator Cicero, the Stoic, who said this is how uh, we should expect slavery to work. 
But when you read his speech that, that's quoted from in context, he's talking about Rome being enslaved as a people, and we should be, expect to be freed within seven years. And, and by 30, we let our slaves free. And, and, and um, the, the rest of the historical record doesn't really bear this out as the norm in Rome. We just got one little speech because people don't talk about slavery. It, it's just this thing that is. By most accounts, we're looking at 70 to 90% of the Roman population is enslaved when Paul is writing. The church is, is in, the, church, the early church is slaves. Well, you know, they were doing, uh, I've always said this, I've done some research before, the slaves were professionals. They are. They could be professionals. And it wasn't like here where it's guaranteed always slaves are at the very bottom of the economic uh, ladder. You could be anywhere on the continuum of wealth in Roman slavery. But the person who owns you has the right to make decisions about where you'll live, what you'll do with your time, and, and, uh, and, basically every aspect of your life. In Rome, in Roman slavery in the first century, if you had children in your master's household as a slave, if you and your wife and your master let you have a wife, they didn't call it matrimonium. They had another word for it because it's within slavery. So an owned person is married to another owned person. Guess who owns the children? The master of the household in the Roman system. It's an unthinkable thing to me that my children would be the property of someone else. When Samuel talks about slavery in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I mean about government, about the king is going to enslave you. You don't want a king like the Gentiles because they enslave the people. I think we should really take note of that. He's going to conscript your, your daughters and your sons and take over. So... Um, my summary on Roman slavery is it was bad, and you don't want to be that. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, if you can be free, be free. But if you are enslaved, then what the circumstance you find yourself in, recognize your Christ free man. And if you are um, free, recognize your Christ slave. You belong to Jesus. He bought you. He owns you. And he is actually the one with the right to say what you do with yourself with your time. So... This is a culturally sensitive topic, but I think we need to get rid of all the shackles of cultural uh, sensitivity and let the Word of God speak to us on this very relevant topic. That is the worst thing, as I was growing up, the worst thing I could ever imagine is that someone would enslave me. It's not the worst thing I could ever imagine. You know, it'd be the worst thing is that I'd be a slave to sin and my life would have no significance. As a believer, I would enslave myself to my sin nature in Romans 6 and I would not walk by the Spirit. All right, so in Ephesians chapter 6, remember, it's all flowing from verse 21 of chapter 5, submit one to another in the fear of Christ. And that is the result of being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. Remember that rationale? To understand Ephesians 5.18 through 6.9, be filled by the Spirit is the command. The result are the following things, including submit one to another in verse 21. And then this is how that works within the household of husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. It's within the household. So they call this the household code. So in verse 5, if you follow along in the notes, slaves, obey your lords, kurios, your lords. I'll just consistently translate that. I know that means master, but that's the word for the Lord Jesus Christ, kurios. 
So do we understand Jesus as the master? We ought to. Redemption means I've been bought. Own that. Live that. It's awesome that we belong to him. Slaves, obey your lords according to the flesh with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your hearts is unto Christ. Okay, so there's several modifiers, several things that describe what it's like to obey your lords. Obey, hupakuo, our word for children obeying their parents. Very clearly, it's the human master of the slave that we're talking about. You obey that person. Now watch. What's the attitude in which you do it? In verse, f- verse 5. What's the attitude, anybody? With fear and trembling. What does that mean? Does that mean your, your brain, your, your soul, your mind is completely corrupted and, and destroyed by terror? Spirit's broken? No. What does this mean, fear and trembling? It's a way of saying that I have respect. I'm respectful. I'm not disdainful in my soul toward this other person. You know, this person may be an idiot, and I may be way more, more uh, educated than the slave master. I think that probably happened a lot. Roman slaves were very educated, and Paul's writing to them, which means they can read. <laughs> they can read. So, uh, fear and trembling is your attitude in the sincerity of your heart. So sincerity, well, sincer- sincerity is an important word. You know what that means? You know what sincerity means? It doesn't mean that you glaze your eyes over and try to cross them and think in concentric circles until you really feel it. That's not what it means. Sincerity is very simple. It means you mean it. That's it. It means I mean what I'm saying. I've heard before the spiritual life is not Christian. The Christian way of life is not sincerity. Okay, it isn't an emotionalism for sure. It's not emotionalism and mysticism, but it is meaning what we say. So, what, like for example, believers are responsible to confess their sins according to First John one nine. It's not the only verse that says it, but it's the clearest statement that if we, John included, confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's possible to confess and not mean what I'm saying because I'm not thinking about the words I'm using. I know I've got friends that, that, that I've been this, this way before because we get into a drill. I'm just going to confess my sins and just kind of go through motions. But if I'm not thinking about the words that I'm saying, I don't actually, as the author of these words, mean them, then that's the problem of sincerity. I don't mean what I'm saying. I'm just going through a list because I'm trying to get a mechanical result. And the difference between not meaning something and meaning it, that's as close as I get for you to understand what I'm talking about. Like you actually have to, like, love you. Ever do that? Ever love you to somebody? You're going out the door, we just had an argument. All right, I got to go love you. You might mean that in the moment, and you might mean it later. I'm glad you said it, right? But think about what you're saying, and, you, and so it's possible to just go to say words, wrote words. But this is sincerity of heart. And so it's not like, I'm going to obey you, Master, and inside I'm Eddie Haskell and I hate you. Eddie Haskell. All right, so back in the uh, 50s, there was this horrible thing introduced called a sitcom, and uh, the worst one was Leave it to Beaver. There was a character, it really was, it really was. Andy Griffith, that was the one where Andy said to the dad, your son needs a whipping, or actually says, you know, we've got a woodshed out back if you want to go spend some time with your son. And the dad says, a real woodshed? He says, yeah, you need to go take care of business. We'll we'll let you. Leave it to Beaver says with Dr. Spock that you'll break their little souls if you spank them. Anyway, that's the problem of the 50s, and we're still dealing with it today. Um, 
leave it to Beaver had this character that needed a spanking. His name was Eddie Haskell. He was the worst person on TV history because he shows up and he's all nice and he's respectful and polite. Oh, can I get the door for you? Can I help you with the groceries, Mrs. Cleaver? He's this character that on the outside is really respectful and charming. And at first you're like, wow, what a refreshing person because you're getting all this charming. But then when the kids close the door up in their bedroom and you hear what this kid's really like, you say, he should never be around anyone because he's awful. He's poison. That's Eddie Haskell. And um, this is the problem of sincerity when you're one, it's a hypocrisy. So you don't want to be that slave that someone who's savvy and knows people says, this person is always acting a certain way, but I think their heart is a different way. And it's hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to know what you're dealing with with people. But be genuine. Be a person of integrity, sincerity of heart. And then the key to slavery is that I serve as unto whom? What's the key to service? As unto Christ. It's for Him. Boy, that takes all the weight off my shoulders about feeling like my life needs to matter. I can't make a difference. I'm stuck in this slavery situation. Actually, the only person whose opinion of your life's work matters, he's got you right where he wants you. He's watching history unfold. He's setting conditions, and he loves you more than you can imagine, and he wants you to serve in the, in the work that you find around you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, young men, in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he'll promote you, exalt you at the proper time. And you do this by casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Joseph, in the slavery situation, Joseph in Genesis, finds himself enslaved, and he bubbles up. And then he finds himself working for, um, for the king, and he bubbles up. And, and Joseph is a great example of this. You just have to be a Joseph. You have to be faithful in the situation in which you find yourself. And this is, this is bedrock to build your life on. Everyone here has work. Everyone here has people that are, you're accountable to. Everyone here can apply this that way. Now, furthermore, in verse 6, how is this not supposed to look? Sincerity of heart is unto Christ. My favorite phrase in Ephesians 6, not with eye service as men pleasers. Boy, that is a mouthful of word picture that really says that, that we're talking about. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Hey, here, come, here comes the boss. Hey, uh, we're sweeping. We're doing our work. What, were, what are you guys doing? I, I was watching the video camera. It looked like you guys were sitting around for the last hour, and then you acted like you were working when we... Oh, there's, there's video cameras? We, oh, oh. Well, video camera. Well, now we've got an eye service because there's cameras all the time. Why are there cameras all over the place? Because people that aren't watched tend to do things they shouldn't do. And so um, eye service as men pleasers. See, if I am a person of integrity and I'm saying the right thing is the right thing and I need to do the right thing because it's right, regardless of who's watching. See, that's what Paul's getting at. And that's, this is the, when, when, they, when they had H. Norman Schwarzkopf, Stormin Norman, the general from uh, uh, Operation Desert Storm in the early 90s, they had him come uh, talk to the cadets um, toward the end of his, turns out, at the end of his time on this planet. Uh, Schwarzkopf gave a definition of integrity. I think it was, might have been at a graduation or, or just at a commencement speech or something, but he said, he said um, integrity is when you, um, when you do the right thing when no one's looking. That was kind of his, I re- recall, and I don't know where, if, he got, if he, that was his or he got that from someone else, but integrity is, what you do, is when you do the right thing 
even when no one is looking. When you say, no, I'm not going to let this go because it's just not right to do that. And that inner sense of doing the right thing. Now, who's always watching? Who ha- for whose eyes are we serving? The Lord Jesus Christ. He always there. Santa Claus isn't always watching, but Jesus is. Right? And there is an outcome if you're a good boy or good girl, if you serve him, if you do what he wants you to do. There is a recompense we'll read about in this very passage. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the soul, from suke. So see, it's not, here's, there's two different directions of motivation. Young people that haven't really worked a lot yet for outsiders, watch this real quick. If the outside eye of the boss is looking at you and that's the reason you do what you do, then there's two bad things happening. One, the boss knows that and it's not something they respect. They don't like that about you. Oh, well, I'm trying to do everything that pleases you. They, that's not what they're after. They want to see you do what's right because you've been trained, because you have character. The other thing that's happening is you're not doing your best. You're worried about what do they see instead of what needs to be done. And so this, this frees you. Jesus Christ has motivated me to serve him, sweeping the floor, preaching the gospel, being someone that I can just listen. Someone says, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Somebody at work, it's, it's a coffee break. You say, let's talk. I can hear. And you, and you listen for Christ's sake to this person and maybe have an opportunity to, to take one little step closer to the gospel because you're in their life, because you're willing to, to, make that, to take that time. See, the point is that if you're working from the soul, if you're doing the will of God internally, then the, the, the concern of eye service is no longer a concern. This is a, this is a big problem for young people. Young people that want to get it right, they want to get promoted, they want to get a good report, good evaluation. It's a real problem to say, let go of the boss's eyeballs for a minute and just worry about what Jesus Christ has you doing. And that makes you the best person at work. That makes you the best worker you can be. It makes you the most efficient. It makes you the most trustworthy. But it's got to be consistent. See, this is the hard part. If we take, if I have a little occasional Christianity, this does no, no basis for any kind of work or, or profession. But if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ who's committed and every day you start your day and say, this is your day, God, help me. By your spirit, walk in a way that pleases you. Let me do the works you've prepared for me. Then when you bring that spiritual life to work, I'm not talking about, you don't have to bring a Bible. You don't have to preach the gospel to your friends. You can just be Christ's agent in the work that he has you doing for this human boss. And as, as you're doing it from the soul, as a slave of Jesus, the boss, the human boss, says this person has maturity, has depth, has character, is efficient, is hardworking, is, is uh, really somebody that we can, we can rely on. We can put a little pressure. You know what pressure is at work? A lot of times it's promotion. A lot of times we, we can trust you with more and we're going to pay you more because we can trust you with more. Now, the problem is when promotion happens and pay doesn't follow it, we want you to do twice as much, but we're not going to give you any more resources that's when you got to learn to negotiate a little bit. Anyway, um, this is the internal work for Christ as a slave instead of the external minimum standard for the boss. I hate the idea of my time being the pay that I get for my time. Isn't that an odious thought to you? 
like $15 or, you know, the socialists are going to try to get $15 minimum wage. Whatever minimum is today, that's what $15 is going to be worth when they do that. That's just how that works because there's a market. You can't beat it. But that's my opinion. But, but let's say 15 bucks is what they say your time is worth. That's really not a living wage. Nobody should go into a minimum wage situation trying to support a family. We all understand that, I hope. But let's say that you're, you're paid as a 16, 17-year-old 15 bucks an hour. Isn't it hard to accept that an hour of your life, one twenty-fourth of your day, has a value of $15? I, I think that's disgusting. 1,500 pennies? 1,500 pennies? That's not what my hour was worth. That's a lot of pennies. But my life, I mean, an hour is your life. See, the pay you get for the work that you do, that's the value of your labor to the organization. It's not the value of your time. Can we not agree? I mean, you are not your work. That's a misunderstanding by people that don't understand Christ. You are an image bearer of God for his sake. And the work you do is the productivity that the spirit enables you is supposed to be enabling you to do. So if we really have the fear of the Lord and we do what we do for God's sake. Now, now what if you do this, if you're a person of integrity at work and you politically get ramrodded, get shafted by the, by the system, by the politics, because every organization, I don't care if you're a Chick-fil-A, uh, how may I serve you person at the, at the register or if you're running a company there are politics in that in- enterprise there is politics on the shift of the little burger hop that, that, that just is there are competing things competing values, competing interests, self-interest is happening, people are, are, are not calling you when the hour sheet comes out so they can get the right, the right times for them you know those kinds of things when you get hurt or oppressed or treated unfairly in a circumstance at work when you're doing this when you're getting this right do you not understand first peter 2 this is a redounding to glory to christ as you suffer along for his sake and trust him through it you entrust yourself to god who judges righteously and you don't have to worry about the mistreatment you receive this is a huge part of the life in first peter 2 peter's talking to people to slaves who are mistreated and who bear up under the suffering and trust in the Father who judges righteously. You don't have to worry about it. So, but, but you do have to worry about it if you're an eye service as men pleasers person. You've got to work it. You have to work the system because you're not walking by the Spirit. You're doing your own thing. So I would challenge you that this is not optional for Christians that find themselves employed. This is, this is a dogmatic responsibility for all of us. Verse 7, with goodwill, rendering service is unto the Lord and not unto men. How many different ways can he say let's, it's internal? Let's count them. Fear and trembling in verse 5. Sincerity of heart in verse 5. Not with eye service as men pleasers. That's a negative statement. But slaves of Christ doing the will from your soul, the will of God from your soul. With goodwill, rendering service is unto the Lord and not unto men. Boy, did he just say the same thing three times. And it's really a simple concept. But this is the secret to success as a Christian slave. 
You can do it. We could all do it. We haven't had to do it in this harsh a context of slavery, but you could do it as an employee, and you could do it as a slave if you found yourself enslaved. And the reason you can do it is because of what he says in verse 8. Because you know that whatever good thing each one should do, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or whether free. See, the real issue is that, well, I don't like the work that I do, or they've got me doing this, I don't like it, or whatever. The work I do that God has me in an authority structure where I serve him in that structure, there's a boss over me, but I'm really serving the capital B boss, the Lord. When I do this for his sake, as a slave or as a free man, I am accruing eternal rewards. That's the argument. That's the rationale. And so if you don't have an eternal perspective, see, that's why, Dar- that's why Darwinism has to be the operating principle for communism and national socialism. National socialism is the, was abbreviated by what? What do they call the national socialists? The Nazis. It's a leftward movement. It's not a right-wing movement. It's a left-wing. It's a, it's a socialist movement. The Green Movement today has its roots in uh, Lebensraum, is the, the German uh, uh, Darwinist socialist uh, uh, green dream. You can read uh, Nazi Oaks by Mark Musser on that. When, when, um, when you take God out of the picture and your eternal destiny and his ultimate eternal judgment off the table and all you've got is between now and the great dirt nap and nothing after that, then everybody becomes motivated, the proletariat, the labor force becomes motivated to make the best I can of my temporal economic situation. This is the whole Leninist scheme. And, um, and I could argue that this is something going on in Nazism also, and in, social, in various forms of socialism, is that we, we start with atheism. We start with no God and no eternity. Because that's the whole motivation for the believer to serve God under uh, less than desirable circumstances. But the truth is, as I've often lamented with my brother, uh, Brendan Arbuckle, when we talk about the difficulties of life, you could find yourself as a manager, as a project leader, as an executive in a business, and still say, it is so hard to get anything done in this life. As Brendan, Brendan always says, thorns and thistles. <laughs> You ever heard him say that about work? Thorns, that's Genesis 3 in the curse. The curse of labor is going to be thorns and thistles. That's not somebody in a slave situation. That's someone that's a manager. Thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard because, see, we're not here for this life. This life is in preparation for what's coming. As you study the Word, I want to leave with this thought this morning. It's the first bullet under the Scriptures, uh, the, the translation I've given you. When you study the Bible, you have to come to grips with a couple of things. The first is the historical setting, the, the original meaning that the author has. And that's the most important question to ask, is what does God actually mean by what he says here? That's called hermeneutics or interpretation. That's what you're doing when you interpret a passage. Like, does Paul mean uh, uh, an indentured servant, or does he mean a Roman slave when he says this? He means a slave, owned by someone, sold at the whim of someone, their body is not their own uh, possession by the way the Romans treated their slaves. This is what he's talking about. It's awful. How do I apply it? That's a secondary, lesser important question, I think, because when God speaks, that's God speaking, and he gets to mean what he says. Paul means 
what Paul means, and he's giving us what the Holy Spirit has inspired him to say. So that's the meaning question. Roman slavery. But the contemporary application is where you and I put it into practice. It's less important because it's not the Word of God. When I give you applications, I'm proposing this is how my worldview and my understanding of the Scripture takes root into concrete experience in everyday life. But to me, what's much more important is what is God saying? I hope you understand, like infinitely more important than Dave Roseland's applications. I started with an application. It's awful to be enslaved by socialists. It would be an awful thought to be enslaved by socialists. But if I am enslaved by socialists, I've got a, a rationale to think through how I'll live my life under that order. So historical meaning has to be distinguished from contemporary application. And here's what happens. We start using meaning when we're talking about application. And that's a big no-no. We start saying, well, what Paul is saying is that when you go to work as a, as a worker, wait, 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 Paul's talking to Roman slaves. That's, that is a historical situation where this really happened, and that's the meaning. Now, understand that God, through the Apostle Paul, is showing you how to think about your contemporary situation, but that's an application. And so what we're trying to do is avoid, I want everybody to read their Bibles together. Read a Bible, have a Bible study. But the problem comes in when you read something and say, well, this is what this means to me. Well, that's a great thing if you're talking about how it applies. But if you're answering the question of what does Paul mean by what he says, no. And it's an important distinction to make, and I'll tell you why. Uh, In popular evangelical scholarship today. I mean, the way the mainstream of scholarship runs, they're trying to figure out how to put these two horizons together. They call them the two horizons. The original context and the contemporary significance is the best way to think about it. And they're, but, they're, but they can't stop calling it meaning when they're talking about what it does today. How do I live this today? It's the meaning. Because they're taking the meaning out of the author's intention and they're putting it into the reader's experience. And that means that there's no control whatsoever on the Scripture. I'll close with this little illustration of this problem. The Bible is very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 about sexuality. It's very clear about fornication in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. It's very clear throughout the Scriptures that this will kill you. It's a curse. Don't do it. Everywhere you go, sex is for marriage because God made you and sex, and He's got a purpose for you. This is easy math. But my body says, yeah, I know, the body says, the world says, the culture says, everybody says, but except God says it's this way. Dave Roseland is preaching the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says. All right. So my culture, my my hormones agree, and the Word of God and Pastor Roseland disagree, and so there's a conflict. Well, if I am letting the meaning come from me as I experience the text, I can come up with all kinds of ways to say that was then, this is now. Well, they didn't have contraception like we do today, so they were stuck with with, uh, you know, birth problems that we don't have to have if we've got birth control. That's how we get around that. Cultural. There's all kinds of ways you can say, well, there, this is, how, but, but the problem is that God gets to speak and he gets to decide what he means by what he says. And the way to apply today the fornication prohibitions is to say, yeah, birth control exists, there is a question of its use. There's a, you can start thinking through ethically as a Christian how this should properly or if it should properly be used. What do you think, Dave? I think it's fine. But the, but the question of fornication and sex and marriage has not changed, and it will not change. God has a blessing for marriage. The sign of the marriage covenant is sex, sex and that's where it's for. And that's never going to change. 
And your culture is no different from Paul's culture. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I told you in my letter not to associate with people who are given to fornication, people who, who engage in this. I did not mean with the people of the world who engage in fornication. For if I meant the people of the world, you would have to leave the world and not to associate with them. In other words, we know that everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it in the Corinthians. Everyone's doing it in America. This is, this is well, we, we know this. But Paul says, you Christians do not associate with the so-called brother who is doing this so that he'll learn, so that there will be the correction for that person's recovery. In other words, sin is going to be sin is going to be sin until we're all resurrected, until Satan and his demons and those that follow them are in the lake of fire forever, and we are uh, glorified, ruling with Christ in his eternal kingdom uh, of the increase and, and of his kingdom and glory. There will be no end forevermore. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the, the two horizons, for the clear scriptural teaching and then how we can apply it, for example, and, and how we can think about our work where we have bosses, they do not own us, but they have the right to say what we do with our time at work. Let us not, Father, as believers in Jesus Christ, be eye-servants and men-pleasers. Let us render our work for you, for your Son. Let us work gloriously, consistently, faithfully, with integrity, with character. And Father, I pray that these young people and, and those that might hear this message that are getting started in life, that they would see um, this is the way to build a life day by day by day, consistently looking to you, to be pleasing to you for the eternal reward that accrues for that faithfulness so that a life of consistency, we can look back and see all the ways that you rewarded us in time because others took note, because people could trust us, because we were reliable and useful and therefore successful at work. Father, I pray for all our young people that they could become industrious, they would bear your image as uh, creative and, um, and working, and that we would um, not enslave them, that they wouldn't become enslaved, but if that they had to, they would do this well with an eye to eternity. Father, we're trusting you with everything in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen.